0: Good morning, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders and pastor here at the church. We're very grateful that you're here this morning. We do have a lot of guests uh, in with us from out of town. Uh, As many of you know, we uh, house in our offices and facilities here, Boy With The Balls office. But more importantly, we work with them as a nonprofit apostolic team that really is here in the community and beyond. Uh, And we are very privileged to get to work with them so synergistically. Uh, We like to call it an abbey, Uh, an abbey where people can belong as they're coming to belief in Jesus. And this has been a a wonderful experience for many of us. Uh, Of course, the team, many of which are in our church also and church leaders. So with that is a global board, and that board is uh, in town this weekend looking at uh, looking at all the future and plans, and hearing God as to what He has, and trying to have faith to believe with Him or believe in Him that all that He's going to do with us, as an organization, as ministries and teams all across the globe—in Nigeria, in Kenya, uh, in Costa Rica, in Nicaragua, in San Antonio, here in the Gwinnett County area, and also in Boston. So, uh, I want to just introduce the board members that are here with us. Some of them have already had to leave and just ask them to stand. Mark and Karen Woodruff, Uh, Mark is our board chair, Uh, Chuck and Cherie Bass, if you guys would stand. Uh, Also, Roger, uh, my dad is here, and his lovely wife, my mother, Ray. Uh, And then, uh, and then Gord and Selena have already had to go, and who am I missing? And Ed and Sue have already had to go, right? So uh, would you just greet them and welcome them for being here? Uh, yes, I'm on the board too. Uh, I am on the board too, and my lovely wife, Donna. And then also with us this morning are our very dear friends, Robert and Sue Grant. Robert is my pastor, my mentor, my everything, coach that you can imagine. We're very grateful. They'll be back with us in about 30 days, and so we'll get to hear from him on a Sunday morning. But Robert and Sue are here. Let's welcome them. And then also Peter's parents, Brian and Kathy Emmett. We like to introduce them that way because Pete is so loved here. Uh, And Brian's going to be sharing with us in a few moments the ministry of the word. And so we'll look forward to that. But before we do that, I'd like to ask Jamie to come up and let us pray for a mission that is an opportunity for us to stand with them.
1: So we're all called to make disciples and first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and some of that is just our work constantly loving our neighbors and co-workers and then sometimes it becomes a little bit more focused and intentional so boy the ball being here is one part of that for us as a church we have a very specific trip that's happening that really starts this week that's an important one so I'm going to ask Anna Curry and then Chuck and Shri Bass to come up we will be taking the trip and then ask Anna just to explain real quickly the trip, and then we can all pray for them. We took a trip, uh, me and Chuck, uh, just about three uh, a month ago, and you guys all prayed for us, and then also the conference that we were all at, ACM, prayed for us, and it changed the trip. So we have a chance to participate by praying. Anna, would you tell us where you guys are going? We are going to Lebanon, so we'll leave this Thursday and get back next Saturday. And we have... um, Our main mission on the trip is to... Uh, see if the Lord is opening doors for a new boy with a ball team in Lebanon. So it, Lebanon's been a place for the last 10 years that the Lord has brought up in different ways, but there it just wasn't the timing to kind of walk through it, and there's been a lot of open doors this year to step through that. And you guys know the situation in Lebanon. It's very, very difficult. Uh, the, it was already difficult with refugees and just uh, corruption in government and difficulties in government, and then there was the huge explosion. So... Please pray for them uh, as we pray. Chris, would you pray for them? and I'll.
0: Can I just get the board? Would you mind coming up and our elders real quickly just to come up and stand up? Y'all come around here in the front, okay? Nobody likes to come up here, but this is where we need to be. You come on. Yeah, we want you here too. Yes. And, uh, and I'd like our al- elders to come up too, just to stand with them, believe God, to go before them. Uh, many doors being opened. The Lord said to pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his field. Lord Jesus, we stand with these your servants. We thank you, Lord, that you go before us. We have journeyed with you long enough to know and to believe that we never go alone. We won't be effective if we do. But you have promised that you are always with us. You are always with us, even to the end of the age. And you are the one that is inspiring ideas and strategy and plans. You are the one that is raising up leaders. You are the one that are raising up followers of Jesus to be assembled to make effective kingdom work. And we thank you, Lord, that of the increase of your government and peace, there is no end. And this is a part of that. We are a part of this apostolic age where we are journeying, just like Paul and others in the book of Acts, into places that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you will go with Chuck and Sheree in the name of Jesus, that you will be with them and that you will protect and guide and guard them, that you will be with Anna, Lord, that you will protect Guide and guard her. Lord, that you will give open doors to each of them as a team and individually. That they will sense your spirit with them, adorning them, speaking to them, and empowering them into the things of God. We pray, Lord, for the miraculous opening of doors. We pray, Lord, for clarity as to what to do and how to plan. And we pray, Lord, that they will be effective in the work that you have set before them. Just like in Acts... In the book of Acts with Antioch, when they set aside those for the work to which God had called them, we set aside now, in this moment, Chuck and Cherie, as board members of Boy with the Ball, and Anna, as our chief operating officer, as the one who has propelled so much growth in this movement. And we send them out now in the name of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you. What a privilege for a church uh, such as us to get to be so vitally connected with so many things going on around the globe. In just a few more weeks, Jamie will be traveling along with probably one or two others uh, into Kenya and then possibly also Ethiopia. So there are very exciting things on the horizon for what God has called us to. So our special speaker today, Brian and Kathy Emmett, we love them, they were honorees at last night's a hero award as was Robert and Esther Yee, our dear friend. And so we're blessed, you know him, I ask that you would receive him as God's servant because the word of God says when you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, then you receive the reward of the prophet. And I would like to get on in on some of Brian's reward. Would you please welcome Brian Emmett.
2: Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be back here with you. Uh, Kathy and I always love being here. And it's not simply because Peter and Christine and Lucia and number two are here, but it's because all of you are here as well. So uh, we we feel so much at home here and, and want you to think of us as uh, CLC's ch- satellite campus in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, this morning, I'd like to see if I can bridge uh, a little bit uh, what our church back in Chapel Hill has been working on the past couple of weeks, and what you all have been working on as you've been... Uh, navigating your way through the Book of Acts. So back at our church in Chapel Hill, uh, we're exploring uh, the theme, what does it mean to be countercultural for the common good? So being countercultural for the common good, what, what might that look like? And of course, the Book of Acts is about all kinds of things, and among them is the development and sustenance and challenges of those distinct and unique kinds of countercultural communities that we call church or churches. So, you've been looking at some countercultural practices, things like being filled with the spirits, what it means to be a living temple built of people, not stones. Earnest prayers and open doors, uh, staying in and on mission, and not making it difficult for those who are turning to God to turn to God. And I know there have been many other themes that you've been exploring it well. So I want to start by um, jumping back to Acts chapter 2 and remind us of something that you're already familiar with, but four foundational practices of the church. And I want to use that word practice. Uh, I'll use it a lot this morning. What does it mean to practice the apostles' teaching? What does it mean to be practice being devoted to the fellowship? To practice being devoted to the breaking of bread? To practice being devoted to prayer? And so, because it's Communion Sunday this morning, I want to particularly focus our attention on the practice of the Lord's table and try and think about some ways that what we do here, while familiar, is both deeply countercultural and also deeply formative. It isn't just something we do, the table does things to us. And so, I want to try and explore that a little bit this morning. so first, a little bit about that word "countercultural." Now, there are some of us here who have been hearing this term since the 1960s and we have the tie dyed t shirts and the bell bottom pants and the Birkenstock sandals and some other paraphernalia to prove it and uh, all of us in the church have been hearing for years that the church is called to be a countercultural community so as familiar as the phrase may be, we need to remember that our first call is not to be countercultural. Our first call is to follow Jesus. Our goal is faithfulness, not merely being countercultural. And also, I want to say that the goal of whatever it looks like for you and for us and for all of Christ's people to be countercultural, the goal is not taking over. Or taking back. Or taking control. Our king was coronated on a cross. It's not about us finally being in charge. It's not a utopian idealism that, said, that says, if only we were in charge, <laughs> then the world would be set to rights. So that's not what I mean when I'm talking about being countercultural. It's not trying to find, you know, the one right way and if we could just do that everything would be in our hands <laughs> and everything would go the way it's supposed to. And I think as well when we think about this idea of being countercultural, we have to begin by embracing the reality that the the starting point for every single disciple of Jesus who has ever lived. The starting point is being fully in and of a particular culture. And often several particular cultures, you know, what we might call subcultures or microcultures. There's the culture of family, the culture of race, ethnicity, and nationality, the culture of churches, the culture of whatever religious kind of practice you may have been growing up in and informed by when you became a follower of Jesus so as we grow as followers of Jesus we're always finding ourselves challenged by and needing to challenge certain aspects of the cultures in which we find ourselves we need to see where culture is pushing and forming us in ways that are counter to the Jesus way and then discern discern how to wisely push back, how to be formed differently. And so what I want us to think about a little bit together this morning is, uh, in addition to everything that the table is and means and does and represents, I'd like us to think of it as a little bit of a classroom for countercultural formation. I don't mean a lecture hall where you just sit and listen. But more of a classroom like an art or music or shop class where you're learning, where we're learning how to do some things. So how does what we do at the table form and shape us for what we're called to do the 167 hours a week when we're not together in this particular place? So let's jump into scripture and I'll be in 1 Corinthians 11 this morning and um, uh, the, the words, I think, will be up on the screen. So this is 1 Corinthians 11. Um, I grabbed the new Revised Standard Version. If you're reading a different translation, uh, you should be able to follow along. So here's what Paul writes. Um, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meanings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you, are come, to, that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. A lot to unpack here, isn't there? (laughs) I'm not going to get to all of it. Uh, So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private, suppers as a result one person remains hungry another gets drunk don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing what shall I say to you shall I praise you certainly not in this matter so anybody ever been to a meeting that you felt did more harm than good and we usually think of those probably in a business context of some kind and we say that you know those meetings are boring, ineffective, waste of time, that kind of thing. But there's something more going on here when Paul says, your meeting is doing more harm than good. The Corinthians are in danger of being deformed or malformed by what they're doing. They might be saying the right things and think that they're thinking the right things but the way they're going about the Lord's table, Paul says, isn't really about the table of the Lord. What seems to be happening is that the local culture is starting to distort the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's why Paul says, I I can't I can't commend you here. Paul is honest about there being differences, even divisions in the fellowship, but he doesn't start with throw those people out. Instead, he calls the community of Christ in Corinth to live in the difficult tensions that come with any group of human beings that get together today when we hear the word fellowship we tend to think of my peeps namely people who look like me, think like me like me and whom in general I like churches today can easily become self-selecting communities that end up mirroring the ways in which our culture is already increasingly segregating us into echo chambers and filter bubbles we need to be aware of that. We need to be on our guard about that. It's so easy to do. Everybody likes being in like groups of people. But the fellowship that Jesus is building, the fellowship that's brought into being by the word of God, by the outpoured spirit, by the apostles' teaching, isn't like that. In Paul's writings, the fellowship meant Jews and Gentiles together, Slaves and free together in Christ. Men and women together in Christ. Barbarians and Scythians together in Christ. These are people who do not naturally get along. I'm listening for the amen. These are people who do not naturally get along. Barbarians and Scythians get into the same room and... I don't have a lot in common with you. Right? So that's the kind of church that Paul is addressing. These folks don't start by seeing all the things we have in common. Although in Christ, they do have all the important things in common, which is what Paul is trying to help them shift from and shift towards. is what we have in common in Christ. So in order to learn the Jesus way. These Corinthians. And we Corinthians here. Have to unlearn some things. As well as learning some things. How is it that the table helps us to unlearn some things. That our cultures have taught us. And learn the way of the Lord. So it seems in Corinth things had fragmented along class lines. As they gathered there were certainly consecrated elements and actions that were they're part of their, their, their worship time. But the church was also eating a meal together. An, an agape feast, a love feast that was, or, that was designed to orient those people to living lives of love towards the Lord, towards their neighbor, neighbors, even towards their enemies. But in Corinth, what seems to be happening is that the wealthier folks arrive early, felt hungry, and just went ahead with their private suppers. The working, fo- and sometimes those private suppers involved too much wine. The working people, who in that culture would have primarily been slaves, arrived later, hungry, and with fewer resources. So the stronger and more powerful people in Corinth were allowing their culture to disciple their church along lines that were familiar and comfortable for the stronger and the more powerful people. Paul says, I can't commend you for that. What you're doing is doing more harm to your community than you might think. So what does Paul do? He plunges them back into the teaching of the apostles. Here's what he writes next. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me or for the remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now remember that Paul wrote these words before the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. So Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, we think about the year 53 or so uh, AD. And we think that Mark, probably the first gospel written down is around the year 60 and Matthew and Luke and John are later than that. So Paul is writing down something that sounds like he's read Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, but he hasn't yet. But it's clear he's familiar with that night in the upper room just before Good Friday. And we don't know exactly what Paul means by, I received from the Lord. It could mean that he had some kind of unique revelational experience from the Spirit. It could also mean that he received it from the Lord through the apostles. I think that's probably what it was, but we don't need to to solve that today. So let's just step through what Paul says quickly. First and foremost is the Lord. We gather at the Lord's table. It's not our table. We don't design it. We don't make it. It's his table. And as we've already heard this this morning, if you want the gospel in three words, here it is. Jesus is Lord. Every human culture, every human culture tells a lordship story of some kind. Family cultures, church cultures, ethnic cultures, national cultures, subcultures, every culture tells a lordship story. Every culture provides answers to questions like, who are we? Where did we come from? What's what's going on? Uh, What are are the threats and problems we face? What, what What do our lives mean? Who's in charge? Who's an insider? Who's an outsider? Questions like that. And the Greco-Roman world of Paul's time had a clear answer to the, Lord's, the lordship question. Caesar is Lord. So when the first Christians say, Jesus is Lord, they're not simply saying something spiritual. They're saying something deeply challenging. Deeply countercultural. In a world that claims that some Caesar is Lord, and every culture has its Caesars, its, its Lord, Lords, its Lordship centers, its power centers, its authority sources. And that is why Christ followers are always going to need to live counterculturally. Jesus is Lord means that Caesar isn't, whether Caesar is Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar's giant statue, Julius Caesar, any of history's pretenders to lordship. Since Jesus is Lord, nations and empires are not. Race and ethnicity are not. Distinctions of class and wealth and education and social status are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And we cannot wrap Jesus up. In the flags of our preferred cultures, politics, leaders, nations, economic systems, or causes. Paul emphasizes on the night Jesus was betrayed. And I know Chris has spoken about this before very powerfully. So we know that it was also Passover night. Passover is Israel's great liberation feast. But what Paul draws attention to is not on that Passover night. It's on that night Jesus was betrayed. So who betrayed Jesus? Well, Judas, absolutely. Peter, certainly. The rest of the disciples fled, which is also a kind of betrayal. And the point is, this is a table for traitors. more to it than that I want to be careful but the point is that we're all the traitors were you there when they crucified my lord yeah we all were we were there joining in some way with the crowd with a culture that declares we will not have this man be king over us Every human culture views betrayal as a really terrible thing, particularly if you are identified as a traitor to the local Caesar, right? In a culture that says Caesar is Lord, life, health, security, prosperity all come from Caesar, and you say Jesus is Lord, eventually you may be brought up on charges of being a traitor to Caesar. But at the Lord's table, betrayal is not condoned, absolutely not, but it welcomes repentant traitors. It's not a table for the best and brightest, the good and successful, the brave and the noble, the already pure in heart. It's a table for spiritual bankrupts. Those who mourn over their own deep sin sickness and the deep sin sickness of the whole world. Those who have cut and run in some ways. Those who have failed to measure up. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that every earthly Caesar promises, but none delivers. There's no cancel culture at the table, but there must be truth demonstrated in honest confession. Genuine repentance and sincere commitment to and demonstration of the amendment of our lives. Jesus took bread. We must receive life from outside ourselves or we die. We're not self-creating. We're not self-sustaining. That's a pretty countercultural stance in our modern 21st century world, isn't it? Life cannot be sustained by what we accomplish and achieve either as individuals, families, nations, or empires. In a world of feverish activity and cutthroat competition, in a world that's ever-changing, constantly growing more complex and confusing, we do something very simple and essential. We eat and drink together. Every human being needs to eat and drink. But we don't eat alone, and we don't live on bread alone. This is my body, which is for you. We do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. We hunger and thirst for what ordinary bread and wine cannot supply, necessary though they are. Jesus is the word of God who gives his life for the world. Jesus is the bread of life. Life is from Christ. Life is in Christ. Life is Christ. What Jesus offers his people in the bread and the cup is himself, his very life coming into and becoming our very lives. This isn't merely countercultural. This is amazing. This is astonishing. This is wonderful beyond words. Do this in remembrance of me. We're not re- recollecting long ago history. We're not reminding ourselves of ancient facts and details. By participating at this table, we are being remembered, made members afresh, again, anew of Christ's body his fellowship, his community, his church. Something real is going on as we take and drink together. Something that cannot be reduced to human formulas, formulas, explanations, or analysis. The table's not digital. It's not analog. Artificial intelligence is never going to figure it out and explain it. Take and Eat. In the same way that food becomes our blood, our muscle, our bones, so the spiritual food Christ offers at his table becomes us. As we partake of him, we become more and more like him. Who he is becomes who we are. So, strengthened by this meal, we give ourselves in the Lord's name and in the Lord's love to the world. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Our culture has replaced covenant with contract, and one of the main features of a contract is escape clauses. Jesus has no escape clauses. Lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. There are no escape clauses. And the Lord calls us, as a result of the new covenant he has made with us, to live covenantally towards one another. Even people who are not like us, even people who are not from our culture, people we don't understand, people we think are wrong, people who might be wrong. Maybe you. Chris is free to correct all of my errors once, uh, once we hit the road for home. Um, right? When we gather around the throne and people from every tribe, nation, race, language group are gathered and worship around the throne of God and of the Lamb, your home culture will be a minority culture. Mine will too. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's not going to run on my lines (laughs) or yours. And we get to start practicing that now. The table calls us into the practice of that now. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If he's coming again, he didn't stay dead. We've already heard that powerfully this morning. As Paul put it elsewhere, we are to become like Jesus in his death so that we might become like him in his resurrection. So the table calls us both to the cross and the empty tomb. And it calls us to that basic dynamic of the Jesus way, which is in order to live, we need to die in order that we might live. That's pretty countercultural. And here's the last section of of, uh, this passage from 1 Corinthians. And um, I won't have time to go into it, just offer a couple of comments. So then, Paul writes, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that's why many of you are weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we were more discerning with regard to whom? Ourselves. Me. If I was more discerning with regard to me. (laughs) We wouldn't come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined, we're being formed, so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So just a couple of quick observations here. First is the idea that Jesus is Lord, and that means Jesus is judge. While we are to be good citizens, we will not ultimately be accountable to our cultural Caesars and our cultural judges. Now, when the police officer pulls you over and says you were doing 65 in a 35 mile an hour zone, you can't appeal that Jesus is my judge and (laughs) expect that the cop will let you go, right? But we give account to the Lord who is judge of all. And secondly, we are invited and commanded to judge ourselves. Right? In a world that claims no one can judge me and yet is more than happy to pronounce condemnation and judgment on everyone and everything else, we are invited into the painful but necessary practice of judging ourselves. So the table invites us to confess our faith to confess our sins and to receive from Christ all that we could never earn or deserve. And those who undergo this searching examination in the light of Christ's redemptive work discover to our amazement and delight that mercy triumphs over judgment. So I want to sum up now and I don't want us just to talk about the table. We get to participate in the table together. So what is it that this classroom of the table might form us as we partake together this morning and and month by month as often as you do it? In a world that prioritizes what's new and innovative and and is obsessed with the future and what will happen next, we are receiving what has been handed to us 20 centuries ago. In a world that attends to charismatic personalities and to celebrities and social media and the latest breaking news and discoveries and what's happening now, we are attending to the teaching of the apostles. We're not stuck in the past. We're not stuck on the past. We're not trying to get back to the past or to the way things used to be or some imagination of the way things ought to be. Instead, We understand that the real future is held by the same hands that extend to us the bread and cup. The hands that now and eternally bear the scars of Calvary. The future is not in our hands and it's not in their hands, whoever there might be for you. It's in his hands. And that changes how we understand the past, including our own past, our own histories, and the present. And how we receive the future that is coming to meet us. So we do now and today what Jesus says to do. Because he said to do it. Because he's Lord. Both at the table and throughout our lives. The Lord of the table is the Lord of all. And what he says works. Monday through Saturdays. As well as in church. So in a world that's complicated but shallow we do something simple but deep. In a world that strives to do great things, supposedly great things, with little love, we instead practice doing supposedly small things with great love. So we leave from the table to go and do small and simple things with great love, because it's love that deepens and enriches life, not the tools that acts of love do indeed require. The cup of water offered, the helping hand extended, the ear bent to listen attentively, time taken to simply be with. These and many other actions are the small and simple practices of table-shaped, table-formed love. In a world that claims it's empty of anything above or beyond matter and energy, we learn. That if common things like bread and wine can be filled with the person and presence of Christ. Then every supposedly common thing. Every supposedly mundane moment. And all supposedly common and ordinary persons. Can also be filled by that same person. With that same presence. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And so like Brother Lawrence, we practice the presence of God as we come and go, as we eat and drink with family and friends, as we play with our children, work with our colleagues, as we worship in the midst of the ordinary. In a word that practices angry, reactive judgment, condemnation, and cancellation, whose fellowships are increasingly narrow, angry, exclusive, we practice the hospitality we receive at this table. The heart of hospitality lies not in planning and preparing fancy meals and events. The heart of hospitality is opening hearts and lives in welcome and availability and vulnerability. Just as Christ has opened the life of God to us and welcomed us in. So we maintain a stubborn devotion to this new covenant fellowship of Christ We're not expecting to agree. We're not expecting that we always get along. We're not expecting that we always see things the same way. And so we... And so finally in a world that's full, full, full of words words of information, words of command and control, words of anger and fear, words of confusion and manipulation, we remain devoted to prayer, to simple words when we think we know how to pray, and by simple silence when we suspect we may know not know how to pray, both words and silence offered to God. So at this table, we learn and practice That from him and for him and through him and to him is everything. May we receive the grace of God by which we may become what we eat and drink together this morning at the table of the Lord.